1: My parents were really into Indigenous rights from the beginning, and so hearing their stories about self-determination in 1975, I got really passionate, and I feel Indigenous rights really is Indigenous sovereignty, self-determination, right? Really holding maintaining cultural preservation, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's Indigenous all over the world, and they hold their own culture. Here in New Mexico, we have 23 different tribes, 19 different Pueblos. Each Pueblo has their own unique culture. Their own dialect. Every tribe's different, but we carry the same ideas. We care for Mother Earth, we care for the environment, we care for one another, and we want to do right for one another. But we all have a different way of believing and thinking because of culture. A modern minority.
0: but we're no one's model minority.
2: This is a show about all
0: of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Tyenne Benali, a Diné friend of mine. And if you don't know what Diné means, that means she's a Navajo, a Native American. Oddly enough, the first one we've had on the show, Sharon.
2: Yeah, she was our very first one and full of very thoughtful insights on her own experience answered a lot of our questions, which I felt a little bit embarrassed to be asking just because I had never, I had actually, I don't think I've ever spoken to a Navajo person
0: one-on-one like that. So, And Ty and I met, gosh, more than a decade ago in between jobs. I was doing this cross country road trip and I knew the cities I was going to try to drive through. And I asked all my friends, who should I meet up with? And my best friend had gone to school with Ty. And I didn't know Ty was Danae. I didn't know she was Native. But when we met, that's kind of what came out. And so as we were kind of – it, I feel bad saying, like, wow, I only really know one Native American person. And I think that's something I kind of want to correct on this show because Ty – was, was really clear about she doesn't speak for all Native Americans. Just like Sharon, you don't speak for all Chinese Americans. I don't mm-hmm. speak for all Indian Americans. But she spoke to her own experience in the community and kind of with her feet in both worlds.
2: Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that is super unique about her. The fact that she is able to see both worlds as bal- in, in such a balanced and harmonious way. It was really inspirational and just quite impactful in that way.
0: Yeah, so we'll get out of the way so you can hear me ask Ty a lot of dumb questions with her. A lot really-
2: of dumb questions. I hope you guys enjoy.
0: <laughs> Ty, thank you so much for coming on the pod. How are you today?
1: Thank you. I'm doing great. That's hello in Diné, Navajo language here in the Southwest. We just pretty much been hit by a snowstorm like all of across the United States, but I haven't seen snow stick this much here in Albuquerque.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> of all places. <laughs> so, Ty, I got to ask a question. Where are you from?
1: <laughs> sure. That is a really good question. What I did in the the beginning is uh, what we do in the Navajo culture and Diné culture. I'm going to refer to Navajo as Diné because that's what I... Phil, we refer ourselves to. And there's several different ways people identify themselves when it comes to tribal affiliation. But I say Diné. So when I say Diné, I mean Navajo. But pretty much what we do is our introductions, which I did. We have four clans and we go into where we're from. And my family actually resides up in the Four Corners area. I was born in Shiprock, New Mexico, But I moved to Albuquerque when I was about seven years old. So, but my family, pretty much my extended family all reside in Farmington, New Mexico, just south of there near the Bistai Badlands. My dad has 160 acres of tribal federal land, and pretty much my family resides up there, what they refer to as the res slash reservation. But I moved here when I was in Albuquerque. When I was seven, so I have a unique background. Um, I identify as an urban native. is what they call us who grew up in the city because I didn't grow up on the reservation.
0: It's funny. Typically, when I say, where are you from? Someone's like, oh, I'm from, you know, Southwest. <laughs> yeah. No, but, yeah. but then the load, the loaded question, and this is why I find it fun to ask you this, is if I get asked that, I'm like, well, I'm from Alabama. And then they're like, well, no, where are you really from? Like, what are you getting at? And they're trying to figure out where are my parents right, from? They're right. from another country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Native Americans are the only ones who can legitimately (laughs) say, no, I'm actually from here. (laughs) You're from this country.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that's where it's kind of like when you ask me that, it's funny because I'm like, well, my family roots. And that's what we always have to acknowledge. Where are our roots first? Right. And that is in the Four Corners area, Bistai, which is about three hours north of Albuquerque. But if I was on a regular everyday setting, I would say, yes, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico.
0: But I want to come back to your relationship with the reservation. And I apologize if you just kind of said this. You don't live on the reservation anymore. Did you spend any
1: time as a child there? Yes, and that's actually a good story, but also a bit traumatizing for me in the sense that I went back to the reservation because my dad, he works for the Indian Health Service. And when I was 15 years old, we moved to the reservation. We moved to Ganado, Arizona. And while I was there, I experienced a lot of bullying because I'm urban and I grew up urban. And so... Not being accepted by your own kind was, could be tr- pretty traumatizing. And uh, till this day, there's still those conflicts of like urban native versus reservation, but w- we're all the same basically, even though we grew up in different parts. We're all indigenous. But when I was 15, I had that experience, which was traumatizing because I was bullied. It was a new, experience for me because I didn't grow up on the reservation. Even when I was living up in Farmington, New Mexico, prior to Albuquerque, I lived in Farmington, a relatively small town, but I grew up more modern and didn't grow up on the reservation. So when I was 15, moving to the reservation was an eye-opener. You're still learning your identity as you're a teenager but there were some beautiful moments of learning, but then also there were some like traumatizing experiences as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, being a teenager sucks in general.
1: <laughs> no, no, but yeah.
0: it sucks in general being a teenager, not fitting in because maybe your family's from a different place, but going back to where your roots are, I hate to dig in here, but. Is it just like you don't belong here? You left the reservation. Why are you coming back? What does that look like? I guess the only equivalent I could be like, if so I went back to India and everyone's like, "Hey, you're from, uh, you're American. You don't belong here," but I wouldn't go back to India because I'm from here.
1: Yes. Well, for me, I didn't grow up fluent in Navajo, and the reason why for that is my dad—that was his first language, his Diné language. That's what he first spoke till the age six. But my mom, she was adopted into a white family when she was a few months old. And so when I was growing up, I heard my dad and my aunties speaking Navajo and I gained an ear for it. And I spoke it when I was a little, but my mom and dad didn't speak on a regular basis. So when I was out in the reservation, just because I wasn't completely fluent, and I am relatively light-skinned and I didn't look Native American, I got bullied for that. It's like, you're not Native enough because you didn't grow up here one on the reservation Two is you don't speak the the language, and three you're really light skinned, and one you're from you're from the Sorry, you're from the city. So how could you be one of us?
0: That's interesting. I mean, when you're a teenager, all you want to do is fit in. So I mean, how did you deal with that? Did you have to change the way you acted being back on the reservation, or did you just kind of choose to be yourself?
1: No, I and I stick to this day. I think it's why it's just really being. I chose to be myself. And I think that was the best way. And I didn't survive out there another year. Um, I actually, my, my parents moved me to Farmington to live with one of my aunts because it was just taking a toll on me. My mental health, emotional well-being, and my grades, and academically. I got through it, too, because pretty much been an athlete my whole life and so being an athlete my whole life I pretty much transferred my energy all into athletics and so I think, feel like that's how I got through it It's just really transferring my energy to what I really love to do and that's athletics and a bit nerdy. <laughs> I love to read <laughs> and write so love music. So those are the things that really kept me going and I have a really strong family family support so that's what's really kept me grounded through those times and then having even my auntie take take me in for the second year it was my sophomore year to live in a different completely space was amazing so having that family support um, was great and I feel like that's how I got through it
2: what did you want to be when you grew up
1: <laughs> it's funny you ask that because <laughs> being from the southwest i really wanted to be a marine biologist and yeah, I was like,
0: wait, but there's not. Oh, heck, there's yeah, no ocean. Come there's on, no ocean. I know. Isn't <laughs> I guess that it's crazy? An, There used to be ocean there.
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because the first time I saw the ocean, I think I was like eight years old, and we went a trip to Disneyland, and that's the first time I ever saw the ocean. But from then on, I just had this fascination of near the ocean. And I loved wildlife, marine life. I've always been into conservation and always watched the Discovery Channel when it came to Africa and seeing animals. So I always been into conservation. But something I just got really into it when I went to the ocean, I had this experience and I was like, I want to be a marine biologist. So So that's what I wanted to be.
2: And what did your parents want you to be?
1: What did my parents want? The great thing about my parents is they're like follow your follow your heart. Yeah. Really, they were supportive of until this day they're supportive of whatever you want to do. They knew that they wanted me to succeed and go to college and they were supportive. If you want to be a marine biologist, you can be a marine biologist.
2: Mhm. And did you end up doing that or did your path completely take a turn?
1: <laughs> My path pretty much took a turn and I was going to go to school. I got accepted to a school in Corpus Christi, Texas because that's where I was, hey, I could do marine biology. But I ended up going to Fort Lewis College in Colorado, which is only about three and a half hours north of Albuquerque and a beautiful place. And I chose to go there. And I first, my first year, I did biology. But it, it wasn't for me. I've noticed it, it just wasn't me. My my dad and my sister did biology too. And I think maybe that's what inspired me to continue on as well into biology. And But then I started thinking about maybe I should try something different. So, I started meddling in different classes. And for a while, I think it took me close to like a year and a half to figure out what major I really wanted to pursue. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But you actually, I mean, to fast forward to kind of today, Yeah. you work in the space. You kind of are working in something that ties to your heritage or kind of the current mm-hmm. state of your people. So, right. was, that, was that that realization back then? That that's what you wanted to do, or was it just kind of finding your way there?
1: I feel it was finding my way. And it's all been a natural progression. Being even being back here in New Mexico. I've been here back now for about five years. But just finding my way, it's been a natural path. And pretty much in undergrad, I started thinking about culture. I was really interested in culture. So I started taking some anthro classes. I was interested in psychology. And then I started getting into politics and so I took some sociology and politics class. And then I studied abroad because I thought I wanted to do international business because I knew I wanted to do something international. And it was my first time abroad. I went to England to study abroad and international business. And that was my first time, first person in my family to go abroad. It was an eye-opener. 19 years old. And it was like, this is really cool. Learning about different cultures, met many people from all over. That's where I got my taste for first introduction of Indian from India. There was a lot of Indian students there and we had some French students. And so that was really exciting, just learning about the cultures. And when I came back, that's when I started thinking more on the political science side. And so then I settled on political science and then started expanding on in Spanish. I started speaking Spanish and learning when I was eight, when I moved here to Albuquerque. That was a language that I got serious on. So I pretty much graduated with a bachelor's in political science and a minor in Spanish.
2: That's a long, that's a long way from marine biology.
1: Right? I know.
0: (laughs) 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 What did your parents say during that whole kind of switch up? Because at first, they were probably like, oh, wow, you're doing marine biology. That's what people in the Southwest do What the other kind of Indian people <laughs> right?" No, <laughs> in France. That's,
1: that's why I say. I always feel like I'm like an oddball in that sense. I always felt like different. I mean, even where I grew up, too, I grew up in a really not an area that's not, especially in the 90s here in Albuquerque, pretty rough area. And I was always one of those kids who were secretly like, in the books, but you didn't want to show it because everybody was like tough and gangs were the theme. And so I was really felt like I was hiding my identity. And then I got to college and I felt like I could be whoever I want, do what I want. And I feel like that's where I really started discovering and really getting passionate more about politics and indigenous rights and environmental and like social justice. So, yeah. It's far from marine biology.
0: Just to ask a dumb question, Mm -hmm. indigenous rights, what does that mean? Because that means something different to me, I would assume, than to you. For me, it's, oh, we screwed the Native Americans. There's probably more we should be doing. That's kind of what a rep American probably thinks about it. But I would imagine to someone who has not just lived experience, but literally connected experience to family, community. Mm -hmm. So when you started to take that poli-sci degree, that political leading that you had, And apply it to Indigenous. What does that mean? What kind of work does that even mean?
1: Yeah. For me, Indigenous rights, and actually, when you asked the question before about what my parents thought, my parents were really into Indigenous rights from the beginning. So I always saw it there, always into politics and Indigenous rights. They were into the American Indian movement back in the 70s. And so hearing their stories about self determination in 1975 and there on forward, I got really passionate and I feel indigenous rights really is indigenous sovereignty, self-determination. And I feel that there is preservation into that. So really holding, maintaining their cultural preservation. And it's not a one size fits all. Indigenous could mean every, there's indigenous all over the world and they they hold their own culture. And it's like that here in New Mexico. We have 23 different tribes, 19 different Pueblos. Each Pueblo has their own unique culture, their own dialect. Every tribe's different. And so I feel that overall, Indigenous people, we carry the same ideas. We care for Mother Earth. We care for the environment. We care for one another, and we want to do for one another. But we all have a different way of believing and thinking because of culture.
0: I mean, no culture is a monolith, but something we've talked about before is there are some fundamental beliefs to be it Native American culture or indigenous culture, or or maybe it is Diné, but what are those fundamental beliefs?
1: Yeah, and I get to speak from Diné culture and is one we call a thing, being humble and hojo. Hojo is beauty and walking in beauty. You want to walk in beauty and keep things in harmony and harmonious. So you really think good thoughts. You think in a good way. And there is a thing in Navajo culture in which I do and I've, I've always done is run. we run to the east. So we run to the east in the morning and that's for good blessings. And that's the practice of Hojo and hojo relates to beauty and harmonious. So keeping that and maintaining that will help you out through life. That's one fundamental belief that we do have in Diné, Navajo Way, and also just really respecting Mother Earth, respecting culture. Every rock, every plant has a life, something to it. And you have to also be careful with your thoughts. So, Don't think bad things upon other people or don't say bad things because it always comes back on you. It's kind of like karma in that sense, but we really really believe in that. And then being humble. And that's another thing that's always, for me, working in the non-Indigenous world of the humble part has always been conflicting for me. And we can expect You seem, that pretty, you know, I mean, you,
0: you seem pretty humble, but it's kind of <laughs> in East Asian culture the idea, and it's definitely not South Asian culture to be very clear. <laughs> but the idea of face is that what it is because there is a soft spoken nature. I feel like I'm making a stereotype here, but it's not speaking out not being the loud South Asian person in the room right? that's right. where you're very different from the other Indians
1: yes, yes, and I think that's where it's conflicting too is because and that's what my parents instill too in us is you speak your mind you should be vocal if you're passionate about something you say it and be proud of who you are and I think that's where when I say there's conflicting is when I being humble is not bragging upon yourself. And I feel sometimes in the non-Indigenous world, there's a lot of bragging. <laughs> so for me, sometimes it's, it's hard to like want to talk too much about myself because I'm taught not to do that. But then my parents always instilled in us, like if there's something that needs to be said, you, you be vocal about it because you are speaking for your people. Others might not speak, but you have the ability to do it. So, I encourage you to do it.
0: What needs to be said? What is being unsaid that that you think people, literally, I guarantee no one in our audience is Native American. So what do people need to hear? What don't are, we know?
1: We are in a movement now. When I say in a movement, even like politically, there's this whole talk about healing and coming and understanding the importance of the environment and Also, just Indigenous sovereignty is coming more to light. And I think that's that's really important. Like, I mean, even with like the BLM, I mean, that's coming to light. And I feel the Indigenous movement has always been there, but it's stepping up even more. And I feel that there are young leaders that are stepping to light to bring that voice. Yes, we can be humble, but we also have a voice to speak. Another unique thing about Native American culture is And I could speak from my own self. It took a while for me to really be vocal about things. I mean, I was one of those people in college who had a professor called on me. I would curl up and my heart would just race and beat because I was taught to not speak. And during my career and over the past years, I've learned to be more vocal and be more comfortable with my voice. But I think that comes also, too, just from culture. But I feel like there's this indigenous movement now and it's always been there. But I feel like it's even coming more to light, especially within this like BLM time. And it's really exciting. I mean there's wonderful things going on in Indian country. They call it Indian they call it Indian country, but I actually I don't like the term Indian because I don't feel we're Indian. But everyone has their different point of view on that. Can you talk to
0: that? Because In the 90s, when we were all kind of coming of age, we didn't want to say Black. We had to say African American. And now we know that that's not kind of wrong, but it was inaccurate. The Black experience is not African American. It's Caribbean American. It's et cetera. And it's a capital B Black. So what is that distinction between saying Indigenous, Native American, Indian with a capital I or not? I
1: feel like there's that, like I said, we're on this movement and there's that sense of pride. Because back in my parents' days and their parents' days, it goes back to like the boarding school era. So the boarding school era was 1860 through like 1978 here and here in the United States and where Native American children were born port- in boarding school and they were, they couldn't speak their language or express their culture. And that came pretty much when their children had children. They weren't proud to be Native because they couldn't speak it. And so I feel like that kind of attributes to the decline too of like language and culture. But I feel now we're getting into this movement where there's that sense of pride that, no, well, we're not Indian. We are affiliated with this tribe. We identify as Danae. We identify as Kewa, which is Pueblo up north Santa Domingo. And so it's like you're identifying with your tribe. And I feel like that's like a sense of pride in itself. And I feel like we are in that movement of being proud of who we are. Because in the past, we were told not to be proud.
2: When was that moment for you? Because you grew up outside the reservation, you went back, you had traumatic teenage experiences, as we just talked about, but now you're learning Navajo and you didn't grow up knowing it. When was that moment for you when you were curious to just dive back in and to be more connected to your culture?
1: I feel that it, it was taking time in that sense because I was out of New Mexico for about close to ten years, and so having traveled the world and living other places, and even studying for my master's, I studied international development at Clark University in Massachusetts, and everything I learned there was like the fundamentals of development. And I thought I was going to go to a Latin American country, and everything I was taught, there was a click in my head. I was like, these concepts apply to what's going on just up the road in my own state. And I was like, I don't need to leave the country. And so what I've learned there, I brought back and that's the work that I'm doing because they say Native American communities are third world living in a first world, those conditions. So it's very underdeveloped. You have in Navajo Nation, you have some living without electricity and water. And even the, the roads are really bad. Even where my family live, they don't have a paved road and they haven't had one since I was born. Oh, so that's been, yeah. what, 37 years? Yeah. <laughs> so, and they recently, I would say in the 90s, got like electricity and some still don't have running water. So that, that exists here.
2: How many people live in that area?
1: On the 160 acre land? Yeah. I would say probably... Eight families, I would say. Eight families. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So some of them have running water and some don't. One of my aunties, we have to haul in wood and she has to bring in water, take a shower at my aunt's. So those conditions, they still exist.
2: Yeah. I remember I went back to China and I visited my grandfather's village, which is in a very rural, poverty-stricken area. And they too didn't have electricity, but... For some reason, they were the only house in the town that had a flush toilet. So it was like a really big deal to have running water just for your toilet. And I remember staying there and just, and this was probably in the late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And just going from, at the time, I mean, it was dial-up internet, but there was still internet. (laughs) (laughs) There was still going from that modern worlds that I was so used to and literally just getting on a plane on the other side of the world and just feeling like I was walking into an area that was from a hundred years ago. It was absolutely fascinating and also obviously quite disheartening too, just to kind of see the conditions that they were living in. But yes, yeah, I hear you.
1: Yes. And me having traveled even to underdeveloped countries and Seeing that, and I see the similarities, and I feel like that's where everything kind of just clicked. And being from New Mexico, we have this sense of pride too of being New Mexican because we are a really poor state, but we say we're rich in culture. With people seeing us on the last on the outside, they see us your last in education, your last in economically, uh, but we're really rich in culture, we're really diverse, and that's what I grew up in, and that's what I'm used to. And so, just having that, those fundamentals of being New Mexican is like a sense of pride. And so, coming back to New Mexico too has been really grounding for me because, though having lived on different parts, like having lived in the East Coast, having lived abroad, having traveled, having all that experience made me or makes me appreciate who I am, where I am from, and the knowledge that I gain elsewhere. Bringing it back is the most important, and really helping. When I say my, I say our Indigenous communities flourish, and that's what matters to me.
0: I guess if we kind of think about who you were back then, fifteen-year-old Ty, who was kind of ha- having to experience feet in both worlds, being an urban native, coming to terms with your heritage and where you fit and didn't. How are you? How are you similar? How are you different from that? From that young woman,
1: I'm similar because. I felt that even despite what I went through, it's like I always stood by who I was. I didn't change who I was, and there was always a sense of pride. I've always been proud to be Diné, I've always been proud to be Indigenous, and I always carry that with me. Even though I may be light-skinned, even though I am not wasn't fluent, and even though I know that I am who I am, and so that always was rooted in me. I would say what has changed is learning to accept that being at that young age. It was just, it was, it was tough. And for a while it was like, and I think that's, what's the irony of it is because even what I went through, I'm still willing and wanting to really help the people. Even though at that young age, people would question, why would you want to help someone who treated you this way? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, now you work in something called like program implementation where it's trying to put money back into the communities that you come from but there's you've talked about like there's this tension between the people doing the work not almost understanding the needs can you talk to that the difficulty in your in your day job even though you're trying to help
1: yeah I think for me, too, is because being in the work that I've done over the past 16 years, I started out in nonprofit work, and then it led to working in Washington, D.C. on the federal tribal level. And so got some experience there. And then coming back to the community itself in New Mexico and worked up in Alaska and a few other tribes. And I found that I'm most fulfilled when I'm working directly with the people. And it grounds me for some reason. It makes me feel really good about myself.
0: You've said before that there's a disconnect in the tribe for accepting the work. So at the federal level, at the local level, at the nonprofit level, Mm -hmm. trying to help the community. And it seems like good work. And it's not that there's, I don't know, is there a lack of acceptance? Is there a disconnect? Why is there a skepticism or a reticence for the work that you're doing from the community?
1: I think the reason why, and I see it over these past years, is a lot of these projects that do come in are savior projects. It's kind of like that development concept. You're saving the Indian. Oh, uh, the, the, right? the white savior. The white
0: yeah, savior. Yeah, the
1: white savior concept. But you're not right? white,
0: but you're, but but you're but a I'm native not, doing the work. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I'm not white. But. There's some skepticism when it comes to any outsider coming in to work with the Native people because what I've seen is you have these wonderful, great ideas and they're brought to the community, but for whatever reason, they don't make it past the four-year project or the one-year project because of either there's cultural conflicts or there's just not enough money being rooted. The tribe might not have enough money to cover what's required of them. But then also too, where I've seen, I've seen projects come in and I could speak to experience an AmeriCorps project that we implemented in San Domingo Tribe. And it didn't last because there was conflicting policies. They wanted things that conflicted with the culture of the tribe. Like- so- I would say that there's policies that Pueblo culture, for instance, I think this is where it's hard for me to speak from for the Pueblo people, but I know that from experience of how I feel, for instance, the AmeriCorps wanted men and women to have equal duties. But in Pueblo culture, at a certain time men might do more than the women and women and men both have different duties. Yeah. And so for instance, just that's just one thing like the gender issue was was a cultural conflict. but the federal side didn't see that. And so there are other things too that occurred that just wasn't for the pueblo, but the AmeriCorps could not see that. And so that's why I say there is a fine line between cultural traditions and sovereignty. But if you have these projects that are demanding something that they cannot do, how can they be successful?
0: The only analogy I can think about, it's probably going to offend people, but is mission work in Africa. You can have yeah. your food if you read yeah. the Bible and
2: exactly. you take the exactly. food that exactly.
1: Right. exactly, Exactly.
2: We will help you if you do things our way, essentially.
1: Exactly. Yes. That's what it, the mentality was, the exact analogy. And you see that. I've seen that pretty much throughout Indian country as these projects come in but they're not culturally sound or culturally thought through, or there's not enough consultation with tribes.
0: So what's yeah. what does that make your role in the work? I mean, one, you, you bring the tribe's interest to your work, but do you need to reflect that point of view up to the chain of command that isn't Native?
1: And I feel the work that I've been doing and I'm expanding on is really taking that cultural lens and being sensitive in the projects. Is this going to be successful? Because also, too, being a grant writer – I see other grant writers who are not from the community and white, to be honest, and they haven't experienced the adversities or the experience of Native Americans, but they're writing for these projects that are, yes, sometimes they're successful, but the majority of the time they're not. So how can we pretty much listen to these communities to gain successful or make successful projects? And I see that a lot in the work over the past about sixteen years. It's kind of the same, same narrative and same ideas.
2: Yeah. I feel like the world needs more of people like you. Thank people you. People who have that <laughs> context and who can who can bridge those gaps in a way that might not be obvious for someone who hasn't lived through this or isn't tied to the culture in the same way that you are.
1: And then, yeah, when I was at the AmeriCorps program, there was a tribal affinity group who had consisted of several different tribes who had the AmeriCorps federal grant, and they were speaking to similar concepts. And there's only been one successful, and mind you, this was five years ago, so it could I don't know if it's changed, but there at the time there was only one successful AmeriCorps program that was in existence, I think close to 15 years. But they say a majority of them fail. And that should say something, especially if all tribes are saying, singing the same song and saying the same thing. So yes, I feel that these projects really need to go in deep dive and really also to hire people from that community or have knowledge of that community. Yeah.
0: We'll just have like an ambassador. But I want to ask another dumb question. Another analogy. In tech, in the Silicon Valley, they say that there's clearly an opportunity to have more BIPOC folks working in tech. And what all the big companies say is, well, there aren't enough Black, female, Hispanic, whatever, engineers. They're all white, Asian kids from Stanford. Just saying. Or MIT. I'll, I'll give that one to you. But if there is a need, so we need folks with your background who can kind of code switch between both, understand both sides. Are there enough who want to go into the work?
1: Yeah. So that's where it's it's tough because being in the grant world and project management, philanthropy, there are not enough, not just natives, but people of color doing this work. And it's predominantly white people doing the work. And I think it could come from that concept of the white savior. And then also, I think there's maybe cultural conflict, but then also, I mean, here in New Mexico, they always say too, they want people, because we have really, we're pretty much one of the last when it comes to education obtainment. And so they really try to encourage people from the community get these professional jobs and stay. But usually those who get these professional jobs, they leave. And that's the same concept with tribes. So you might get someone who's really well-versed education professionally, but they'll go elsewhere. And so what you just spoke to is, I think that's where the, the dilemma is, is yes, there could be people wanting to do the work, but they leave.
0: I want to ask one last question about your work. And normally I don't, we don't talk about people's day jobs, but like your day job is <laughs> so endemic to who you are that's as a true. modern minority. So apologies if this is like too LinkedIn-y or too like job interviewy. These are actually the questions you can't answer in a job interview, I guess. But What's my what
1: strength are- and weaknesses? I'm just <laughs> what's your, <laughs>
0: um, where do you see yourself in five years? I
1: was actually going to say,
0: here's, here's what's the funny thing. I was actually going to say, what's your spirit animal? And like, oh wait, it's uh, offensive to native no, people. No, I don't
1: ask said. that. Don't ask that, please.
0: <laughs> you know, but that's like the like cheesy yeah. job interview question. I yeah. just realized how racist that is. Anyway, here's my last question about work stuff. I mentioned code switching earlier, and it's very different for women, for people of a different sexual orientation, for Black Americans. But what kind of things do you have to do to fit in in the majority world that you're doing to get the job done?
1: That's a really good question. I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I feel that... I'm unique in the sense that I can speak for both having that tribal experience, understanding and knowing Indigenous or Navajo Diné culture, and then having worked in like DC and lived in different places, I bring that experience. But at times I feel like, is that good enough? Even as a woman, I still question myself about that. Is it good enough for the workplace? And I think that's... I mean, that's a really good question. I don't. I honestly do not know how to answer that.
2: Did she pass a job interview, Rehman? Would you hire her?
1: I mean, I,
0: Ty, we, we've known each other <laughs> off and on for years. I totally <laughs> hire you. The problem is I don't do anything <laughs> remotely interesting anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, I guess I would, to be honest, like I've been really successful in terms of finding work and obtaining work. And I feel like that's where I'm really grateful and I feel I'm privileged, like for even as a Native American, I carry that privilege because not many Native Americans have traveled, have obtained degrees and have been able to do the work that they really want to do. And I really take that, I don't take that lightly. And like I always say, I want to use the privilege that I have to uplift others who maybe not have the same privilege, Because, but I know how it could, I mean, I come from a, not a wealthy background, so, and I know what it takes.
2: I'm going to, can I ask you some personal questions now?
1: Sure. (laughs) Yes. Enough about work.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Let's stop talking about work. Let's talk about love. So when you've dated, or as you think about a future spouse or partner, are you looking to date someone within your culture or have you dated outside of, outside of the tribe in any way?
0: Your parents totally didn't put us up to this question. I yeah, exactly.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Mom and dad were like, don't ask her, ask her this.
1: <laughs> yeah, for me, so I pretty much, I've dated everyone. <laughs> when I say everyone, it's like so many different cultures. And I've dated African-American. I've dated Hispanic. I've dated European, literally from European Europe. But yes, I've dated pretty much everyone. And so and I've dated, I've met Native Americans, but I au- actually honestly have not dated a Native American.
2: Really? Is there a pressure, it though? Intentionally? Because-
1: no, it's not. I mean, if I've...
2: You just, you just you just
0: haven't found anyone you're attracted to?
1: Yeah, I think probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no, I'm going to ask the question this way, because, like, Sharon and I, growing up as children of immigrants, there was a pressure for Sharon to meet a Chinese boy. She didn't. There was pressure for me to marry an Indian girl. I didn't. And part of it was the selfishness in the family. It's the wrong thing. Sorry, mom and dad. But this idea of preserve the culture. But the culture doesn't need preserving. There's literally a billion Chinese people. There's literally a billion Indian people. But there aren't a billion natives. And so is there a pressure or, or even a...
2: Like an expectation, or like a desire, or something. Or it's your is duty, even
0: like I mean, I felt it's it like, your duty. No, I felt that. I felt <laughs> the, it's yeah. your marry a nice Punjabi girl, carry on the, the the lineage and the culture and all that. And I didn't, and my parents are fine; they got over it. And I'm guessing Sharon yours did too. Once the grandkids came, yeah, but, yeah,
2: they're 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 fine.
0: But it's not the same. There's there's less of you, Ty. I sorry to put this on you, but what is the expectation in the culture?
1: So. My parents don't have expectation. Although sometimes my dad would be like, "When are you gonna meet a Diné guy?" He like teases me. Maybe that's his way of expectation. That's his pressure. I'm a <laughs> exactly. exactly. And he keeps asking, "What am I, my little girl? I have my grandson." But <laughs> my my parents have always been super open to whoever my sister I we've dated and whoever we've been with. But culturally, you want to preserve that and be with the, an Indigenous person and. As I grow older, for some reason, that's kind of calling to me is to be with an indigenous person or someone that's a person of color and that's like-minded. And that's mattering more to me than it did in my teens and my 20s. But as I grow older, it's kind of, I feel that calling.
0: (laughs) Is there like a hierarchy? Are you going to ask...
2: No, oh, no. Oh, I <laughs> thought you were going to ask if there's a Tinder for.
1: Well, I, th- I was. Is there like an iDate?
0: date? Is there an I date?
1: <laughs> no, I <laughs> like don't know. J-date. Actually, because I, I tweet a lot, I love Twitter, and so there's this thing called Native Twitter, and they were joking about that. No, like, really? Yeah, they, they That's call it awesome. hashtag Native Twitter, and you have because we have a sense of humor like everyone else, but our humor is we love our humor, and so on Native Twitter, you could just find some funny things, and so. And they always talk about natives. Natives don't date. They just snatch each other. But that's what's what's unique to me because- now, What does
0: snatch each other mean? What does that mean?
1: Snatching? <laughs> I don't know what snatching myself is because I never <laughs> snatched. But apparently snatching is, I think, is a term for hookup.
0: Okay, gotcha. I don't think oh, you say anymore.
1: <laughs> I'm not the hookup type. I'm more, let's date. Let's see each other. I'm very I'm a romantic and I like that. <laughs> Yeah, but from what I gather and from friends too, it's about if you snag. I'm sorry, snagging, snagging.
0: <laughs> we're all old, Ty. <laughs> I know. We don't know. What and the here you were when you I said, just said, that, said snatch. I
1: snatch. Like, it's actually snagging. Yeah, yeah. And when you
2: said
0: snatch, I was oh like, man, oh man, Native Twitter is going to be <laughs> all up on you. Exactly. They
1: are sorry, sorry, Native Twitter. I meant snag, <laughs> not snatch.
0: <laughs> no, but the hierarchy. So look again. I didn't marry an Indian girl, but there's a hierarchy, and the f- irony of the hierarchy is had, I met a girl from Punjab, but that was Muslim, that wouldn't be good. Like That's the so close, but so far away sort of thing. And Southern Chinese versus Northern Chinese, Han versus Hakka, all that sort of stuff. It's almost, you'd be better off just like marrying outside of the race. Does that exist in native culture? Can Danae date and marry a Pueblo or God forbid, someone from a native from Alabama?
1: Yeah, it does exist. There's some history with pueblos in Diné, Navajo and it's better but that would be the equivalent of,
0: of Chinese and Japanese yeah
1: yeah you want to date a pueblo but I'm open to any culture <laughs> right
2: <laughs> we're gonna make that a PSA <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah
2: When your episode goes live.
0: Native Twitter (laughs) is going to be all over this (laughs) shit.
2: Like we got to snag her. So funny. So I, I have a question. This is a really naive question and tell me if you think it's offensive, but it's something that I've always wondered and you can give us just your opinion of one, but what are your thoughts about Thanksgiving as a holiday?
1: So growing up, we've always, here's one thing I should express too is I grew up more in a Christian background. And not traditional background. My father's were your, side. Were your
0: parents Christian?
1: Yeah, both my parents. But my mom, her, she was adopted out. But they were very traditional. And my dad's side is more Christianity. Now I don't identify. I feel that I'm very. I walk in. I feel like I'm a mix. They're spiritual. I feel I believe in a higher being. I believe in God, but then there's also that traditional values that I respect. So, when it comes to someone that asks me, what's your religion? I just feel that I respect religion. You know, I do believe in a higher being, but then there's also those traditional values and spiritual values that I hold on to. But I didn't grow up. And there's that thing, too. And when it comes to Christianity and tradition, also in Native American cultures, too, did you grow up traditional or did you grow up in Christianity? So, what I'm getting to is when we were growing up, pretty much we celebrated every holiday, and so I grew up with Thanksgiving and whatnot and but as I grow older and learning more about the background and learning more about what happened because we're not taught these History
0: history's taught by the winners,
1: exactly, right. yes, I celebrate it, but there's and I but I feel like I celebrate it for the reasons of yes, I'm grateful. But then also, like, I'm really close with my family. So I feel like it's a family. But then I also honor and I want to acknowledge the atrocities that did happen to my people. So I feel that there's both worlds when I celebrate Thanksgiving. So there's that, yes, traditional being grateful and about family. But then there's also that acknowledgement of what happened.
0: What is the. We just had Chinese New Year's. That's a big deal in Sharon's family. Diwali's was a big deal, even as an Indian American. Is there a Danae kind of moment in the year that is if you could only carry one thing forward?
1: Pretty much we celebrate two around the seasons. Gaji is New Year, and that's in October.
0: Cool. What do you do?
1: Well- I can't speak to it too much because I didn't grow up traditional. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but, uh, like Look, I know you, it you've exactly. got
0: like way more knowledge than I do. Here. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So, but I don't want to speak too much because I didn't grow up super traditional, and those are those are the things too. Is because I know about them, and but I'm still learning about what you do, and I think that's one thing that I wish, even at an older age. Oh, I wish I grew up knowing that. But I'm learning about that now. And I have similar friends who are like that. They grew up more Christianity and not traditional, but they're getting more closer to their culture as they get older. And for me, sometimes I get jealous that I wish I I knew that because I wish I could speak to that a bit more. But due to my background, I can't, but I can learn it and I can explore on it more.
2: That's great. Thank you. We've covered a lot. And we so appreciate all of your stories, and this has such, been such a rich conversation. And I think it's time for speed round. Are you ready for speed round? Sure. Amazing. What is one thing about you that no one expects?
1: I'm an introvert. I'm just kidding. I keep hearing. My <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say no. No, I, no. I wanted <laughs> I know about that one. Yeah, no. I wanted to say that. But I am actually more introverted than I... It's funny because when I was younger, I was more extroverted. And then I would say in my 20s, I started becoming a little more introverted. But what people should know about me is I've traveled 32 countries. And I'm actually really... I can walk in both worlds in terms of being an extrovert and an introvert. But I'm really quite shy. But you wouldn't think that I am.
0: <laughs> I feel you, because it's almost this forced extroversion. You can introversion, extroversion really is about energy. And it's I can totally speak on stage. I can totally have a podcast hiding behind a microphone, but it takes something away from me. And I just want to curl up into a ball at the end of it and go for a long walk or read a comic book.
1: Exactly. That's what how I feel like after this. I'm like, oh, but people wouldn't think that. They would think I'm just this high energy extrovert, but I think that's what helped me too is traveling has helped me become come out of my shell as well because you're forced to meet people or forced to talk to other, speak a different language. And so that's one thing people might find interesting about me is I didn't know Ty was, no, I'm sitting there probably my heart beating and racing. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Can you recommend a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to?
1: Oh my goodness. You're going to laugh. And this one came to me. It's actually a Disney movie.
0: No, you're not going to say what I think you're about to say, are you? What? Well, you have to say it
1: first. (laughs) No, I'm the racist if I say it. No, (laughs) no, no, no. Don't even go there. I don't know why. It just came to me because the first thing that came to me was Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Really. She was a sparer in the books. She was kind of nerdy. And then she wanted to. There was something out there that was bigger. And that's how I feel. And I've always lived that way. That was
0: exactly what I was thinking, too. Yeah, totally. I was totally talking about Beauty and the Beast.
1: When she was singing, when she's like, what was that? The Great White Yonder or something like that?
0: I'm more of an Aladdin guy myself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But no, she's literally the first person because I was, I felt like that. Like you said, when I was growing up in the hood, I call it the hood because it is the hood that I was always, I always felt like an outsider. I always felt I was that nerdy one in the books. But then I knew there was always something out there bigger. And I was. One can
0: say a whole new world.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I feel bell.
0: <laughs> bell. Nice.
2: What is your favorite mom dish?
1: My favorite mom dish. So there's two things. Can I say two? Yeah, of course. So my mom really makes these good homemade noodles, dumplings that are so delicious that were passed on from her mom.
2: Ty, are what you secretly I'm? Asian? Come on. Yeah, I think you are. <laughs>
1: I told you I've meddled <laughs> with so many different cultures, <laughs> and then the other one is pozole, and actually green chili stew. Oh, there's like three. Ooh, that
2: sounds good. Yeah, there's
1: pozole and green chili stew, and no, wait, what is pozole?
2: Yeah, what's what? the mid? Yeah, what's the middle one?
1: Pozole is corn hominy, white corn hominy, and yeah, what you do is basically you. It's eat, it's mostly in pork use pork. Some people use chicken, but. No, the New Mexico way is with pork. And then it's pretty much with chili. So it's either with red. People do green chili, but it's mostly with red chili. It's like a soup. And then it's really good. But pozole, it's big here in New Mexico and you eat it with a nice fresh tortilla and that's it. That's where it's at, pozole. And so my mom makes that really good, and then of course green chili stew. That's like a big New Mexican staple. I don't know if ramen. If you were able to try when you were here through New Mexico,
0: I ate far too much green chili on both of my <laughs> In that part of the world. Yeah. <laughs> not even <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> yeah, there's not the Southwest is beautiful, but the food just that's the the yeah. biggest thing I remember.
1: Yeah, in New Mexico, we're big here on our food. We take pride in that. And that's one thing when when I was living like far on the East Coast, one thing I always missed was New Mexican food. So it's nice being back here. Yeah.
0: What's your least favorite food?
1: Least? That's a good question.
2: (laughs) Do you not have a least favorite food, Ty? (laughs) You eat all things. Come
0: on, bring out the hate. (laughs)
2: Like if someone put something on your plate.
0: Yeah, what do you, you like, do you get pizza? Oh,
1: right? okay. <laughs> You're going to think I'm really weird. This people. Are, I already I do, Ty. I'm I already weird.
0: do. Let's already be clear.
1: Do. Okay. <laughs> watermelon? What? Really? Yeah. Yeah.
2: What don't you like about watermelon?
0: I was so, going to say that's so un-American, but that's not an accurate statement. So
1: No, really. There's something, and this is what we think. My mom, when she wasn't pregnant, that's all she ate. Literally. Honestly. That's all she ate. And ever since I was a kid, I never cared for watermelon so i'm that one like at a barbecue or someone if offers me and i'm like no thank you yeah i
0: see i, I feel that way about cantaloupe <laughs> like cantaloupe i get instant veto rights on because it's garbage but watermelon is kind of everybody loves watermelon
2: that's interesting yeah i love
1: i love see watermelon. i'm just, i'm an oddball <laughs>
2: it's strange i kind of do hear you though i don't like watermelon flavored candy that's where that makes me a little like nauseous if it's like watermelon gum or something that's gross <laughs> Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast?
1: First one comes to mind. I have like a girl crush. I love Michelle Obama. Well, I'm a Obama fan. I'm reading <laughs> the Promised Land as we speak. You know, I think everybody, Obama, everybody right? everyone would
0: think everyone. Somewhere <laughs> in the middle of that book
1: uh, right now. I'm actually in the middle of it. But it's a phone book. Michelle Obama. She's just so inspiring to me. Just her story relates a lot to mine growing up and She's inspiring. She's awesome. She's, yeah, she's, she's so she, good.
0: She, she has a podcast. So maybe you could just get on her podcast. That's exactly. Exactly. exactly.
1: Yeah, I already listened to some of it. So yeah.
0: <laughs> Ty. Last question: What does being a modern minority mean for you?
1: I feel being a modern minority, as an Indigenous Dineh woman, is really being humble, authentic, and true to yourself. I think that's what is a modern minority is just really being authentic and humble.
0: I like that.
2: Me too. Me too.
0: Ty, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us and frankly, taking all of my stupid questions with so much grace. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're know, so thoughtful
2: with your answers. We appreciate it. <laughs>
1: I think that's one thing people I like to acknowledge is people sound really thoughtful. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm thoughtful, but it's nice to hear that.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate it. And I hope we can keep having conversations.
1: Yes. Thank you. Thank you. That means thank you in Navajo. And just to know, sometimes it's really tough when you said you would be the first Native American on the podcast that it felt a little, a lot of pressure because I know I don't speak for all Natives. But I really appreciate both of you really diving in, asking those questions. And can I say one more thing? When you asked earlier, what is one thing you would say for Indigenous people? And it's basically, we're still here. So we're still here.
0: That's great. Well, thanks so much, Ty.
1: All right. Thank you, Ty. Thank you.
0: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
2: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
0: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Now here's a preview of our next episode.
1: I would call it naivete, not so much bravery. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, or much about slavery, really. I just had this undefinable feeling of unease. I don't know how to engage with it. I don't quite have the tools to talk about this. This is a taboo in my family, a taboo in our society. The moment I was at your doorstep, I was surprised to hear uh, that you didn't care much about my
0: feelings of guilt. You just said, no, let's find out what happened on that plantation, you know?
1: Up until that moment, it had been this big, undefinable, dark era. And together we started to break it down go back to the past. Where did this start? how did this happen? How did we end up in 1863 with my great, great, great grandmother getting paid and your great, great, great grandparents getting freedom?
0: That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon.